Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, one of your hosts, and I'm really excited to be joined here today with John Peller, who is the president and CEO of the AIDS Foundation Chicago. And John, we have a lot to talk about and not a lot of time. So we're going to jump right into it. But first, I want to say thank you for coming on to the uh, podcast. Of course, Nathan. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be on Bridging Chicago and to talk with you today. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Why don't we start where we always like to start with our guests, because this is Bridging Chicago. And so we're bringing in Chicago leaders and connecting them with our listeners. And so let's make that connection for our listeners and and share. Did you move to Chicago? Are you from here? What what is your Chicago story, essentially? So I am actually a New Yorker, um, born and raised in uh, in Manhattan. Um, Not many people are, but uh, and I moved out here uh, in 1998. Uh, so it's been, uh, been, been a couple of years since I've been in Chicago. Uh, and of course, I've fallen in, in love with the city and actually loved Chicago before I even came out here. Um, I, I do have a family connection, which is that my sister lives in uh, Evanston. And so okay. for many years, uh, I had been visiting Chicago before I made the move. So we're not going to talk about pizza because we want to keep this a friendly podcast and we all can agree that Chicago style pizza is better anyway. So we'll just move on from there. (laughs) You mentioned not a lot of people are actual, like true from New Yorkers, New Yorkers. So share with us about, because it's a really different world there than obviously it is here. And Chicago is much about its neighborhoods. It's much about its, its, you know, food and culture. And I know New York is a lot of the same way in those ways. But for you, growing up in such a big city, what was that like for you? You know, did you like, because I always think of it as like a very small fish in a very big pond. Sure. So, you know, I think one of the one of the New York is just, of course, a a crazy place to live and crazy place to grow up. I mean, where else do people, you know, keep books in their microwave and sweaters in their ovens because (laughs) they don't (laughs) all true stories (laughs) because (laughs) because they don't have, you know, adequate closet space. Um, But, uh, you know, New York is is just so vital. And, um, you know, I had the experience of taking the subway to high school and um and doing all that but at at the same time um you know i think what's what's amazing about new york um is uh just its diversity uh it's diverse in a way chicago is also but of course in a in a in a, a very different way um and uh growing up i was um in the interesting, you know, position of going to school on the Upper West Side at a pretty, pretty ritzy school and, you know, being a a very middle class kid from 
um, basically the East Village. And uh, in fact, one of the heads of school told my parents that they loved boys from uh, the East Village because we brought such diversity to the school. Um, and that was their... <laughs> Here I am, like a white kid, bring, bringing the diversity from from yeah. <laughs> the, the East Village. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was odd. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, my my dad loved the arts, and so we were, you know, we went to probably two museums um, a week growing up, and so that exposure to arts and culture uh, is really something that has stayed with me today. And you talked a lot about the diversity and how it's different in New York than in Chicago. And I feel like here in Chicago, it is a very diverse city, but it's obviously a segregated city. Even still today, you have your neighborhoods, people kind of stick to those a lot of times. And maybe not so much today as it was before, but it's still, that still, you know, happens. And so for in New York, do you feel like the diversity sort of was more of the melting pot where everyone kind of interacted with each other and you really got to meet and and talk to and share with a lot of different sorts of people? Or do you feel like it was closer to the Chicago model where it's a lot of um, diverse zip codes that kind of stick together? You know, I, I think growing up, I was um, certainly in a, a very, you know, white enclave. Um, and uh, there was, you know, not an, a lot of diversity uh, among um, my friends or in, you know, the neighborhoods I was living in or, or going to school. Um, I think the, the diversity that I experienced growing up really came from the summer camp that I went to, um, where, uh, which is in Connecticut, um, uh, Episcopal Camp and Conference Center. So a uh, a religious, um, religious-based camp, but you know, certainly more spiritual than religious in a, a wonderful way. But just an yeah. incredible, and it remains this way today. Incredible diversity of uh, kids from you know across New York, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, I was um, probably it was probably you know fifty percent Black and Latinx kids, which was um, really an amazing experience. Uh, so that's one way that I was able to experience uh, diversity growing up. One of the things that I've learned even recently as I've uh, been on a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee through our property managers here at the building we work in is realizing that diversity means far more than racial diversity. We're also talking um, disability, disability diversity, neurodiversity. I mean, there's so many different ways to think of diversity, and yet I feel like our minds still go to racial, ethnic, even religious diversity. And so for you, um, as, as you've sort of grown up uh, in a diverse background and then kind of gone to a different area, for you, have you ex experienced a lot in those other areas of diversity? Or do you feel like people are starting to experience those or that it was just always a part of you know, like know, your knowing of how people are? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. I think from from we've been doing a lot of work over the last uh, year plus, like so many organizations, and I've been doing a lot of work personally uh, around particularly racial equity. And we've taken the the position or point of view at AFC that we're focused on racial equity and not the broader uh, issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion because. We believe that you know the the most um, 
uh, really the, the most fundamental area where we need to do better is around uh, racial equity and the okay. gaps between uh, black and white people, black and Latinx people. And so if you focus on racial equity, then you're also able to bring all the other uh, address all the other areas too, because if you're you know focused on the hardest area, you're going to look at the other other areas of diversity too. And of course, um, physical diversity and um, neurodiversity are are critical. Uh, but um, from my point of view as an HIV advocate and um, today as as a Chicagoan, I I do believe that. Uh, racial equity is the approach that we need to to take because it's the um, really the most the, the hardest area we need to tackle. You talked about your parents being very into the arts and in being in New York, you got to have a lot of touches with that growing up. Why do you think that's important? And why do you think it's important for children to really have some interaction with the arts at a very young age? The arts are, of course, about creativity and tapping into potential. Um, I, I can't say, you know, I, I can barely draw a stick figure today. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, um, but of course, there's, you know, a thousand different ways to appreciate the arts and, and to yeah. engage in the arts. Um, but um, as a kid, you know, um, walking into a, a Maplethorpe exhibit, for example, was eye opening for me. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, I think as as a kid who knew that um, I was gay even back then, um, Maplethorpe's you know really we'll call them eye opening images <laughs> uh, <Okay>. <laughs> were um, uh, just incredible to me because in it, it just showed that um, it's not a you know that the world is not a heteronormative place. Yeah. Uh, and so the perspectives that come from uh, through the arts and particularly, you know, the more edgy arts like you see in New York and Chicago, if you go seek them out, uh, really give kids that perspective and challenge their way of thinking uh, in really unique and important ways that help you to grow as an individual. And as I think about what you said what really comes to mind is this sense of like kids interacting with the world around them and kind of how they perceive those things. And obviously a lot of the things are going to be taught from their parents, you know, and then there's the environmental factors and all of these things. But as a kid, sort of seeing the world around you and, and taking that in and having those perceptions and then coming to some of these realizations like sexuality, um, maybe faith or other, you know, diverse backgrounds for you. Um, how did you sort of take that all in and make sense of it? Because I think one of the things for me is like, I grew up in a very small town, so I had a very opposite um, life where everything was kind of condensed and it was great. Like, you know, you could ride to your best friend's house, you could ride your bike to your best friend's house and just hang out there and you didn't have to ring the doorbell or anything. You just walk in and it's like your house. But I didn't meet a lot of different kinds of people. And so when I sort of, you know, went on, 
got older and started to meet different kinds of people and started to realize different things about myself, it was like, whoa, I mean, it, it was really intense for me to kind of come to terms with all this stuff. But for you to do it at a younger age, how did you take that all in? And, and how did other people sort of help you interact with learning these different things about yourself or about the rest of the world? Sure. So I, I certainly, you know, I, I, I was late in coming out and um, didn't, you know, really come out to the world until I was probably 24 or 25. So um, I think, you know, acknowledging what I knew uh, externally took took longer um, okay. than than for some. Um, but the the environment, of course, is an important um mediator and the experiences that you have uh, as a, a kid growing up and what you're exposed to is is just so critical. And um, despite growing up in in the middle of Manhattan, I had incredible freedom and, you know, would mm. go all over the city with my friends and um, to my mother's chagrin um, at all hours of, of the day and night. Uh, and she would, you know, she would, she would say like, here's $20, take a cab home. And, um, and I would go and, you know, buy beer at 15 with, with that money and take the subway. <laughs> um, so, uh, true okay. story. Um, so, um, it, it also goes to show that, you know, we all get in trouble just in different ways, depending on, on where we grow up. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think those uh, experiences and that um, that freedom that I had uh, were really critical for my development as an individual. And so you've got all this and you're ready to go out into the world. Um, did you go to college right after high school then? I did. Um, I went to Johns Hopkins in in Baltimore. I was, you know, the the one third that's not pre med. <laughs> yeah, Johns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, studied um, essentially urban urban studies. Uh, kind of did a make your own major thing, uh, but it was basically poli sci and history. Okay. And I I think the certainly you know Baltimore. Uh, was back then and continues today to be a really amazing and fascinating small city, um, you know, with with all the struggles that small cities um, yeah. have and particularly, yeah. you know, poverty and and um, segregation. So, you know, not not much different than than Chicago. Um, I um, I think I was really, you know, one of one of the things that I learned growing up is the power of cities to shape individuals and to shape individual outcomes. Uh, and also, of course, the impact of government policies uh, on individual outcomes and on our society. And so I think I was able to really explore that more deeply in, uh, in, in college and then after college, went on to work in in DC uh, for about four years and did uh, healthcare policy, which mm. uh, was a um, turned out to you know be pretty useful to my career today. <laughs> yeah, it turned out to be a, a good decision, huh? <laughs> it was, it was, and particularly Medicaid policy. I worked uh, for the State Association of Medicaid Directors, uh, and of course. 
you know, Medicaid today is covering probably more than half of people living with HIV in, in Illinois. So wow. um, really, really critical source of support for uh, low-income people. When I think of policy, I think of state lawmakers, I think of federal lawmakers up there arguing, doing things that were just like, oh, they're doing great, they're not doing great. And then eventually it comes down and they tell us what we can or can't do, right? And um, for you, I'm sure you think of it in a much deeper sense. I have a pretty broad sense of policy. But for people who are like, okay, you know, what does it mean to to fight for policy or to, to really be interested or to study policy for you? Is there a way that you can kind of help us understand what people who are not legislators but are in policy kind of do for the greater good, for society, for, you know, everyday people? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm probably a, a bit of a rare, well, I'm, I'm, it's not so rare, but I'm a registered state of Illinois lobbyist, even though I, I okay. don't really do formal lobbying anymore. It's more, really more to just um, protect myself and, and the organization. Um, I did spend about six or seven years down in Springfield uh, lobbying for AIDS Foundation Chicago and um, also doing a lot of uh, really community organizing around the policy issues that we work on. And um, as someone who, you know, I'm, I'm a policy nerd at, at heart and had thought and uh, fast forwarding a little bit through, you know, past Washington, um, I, I went to uh, policy school at the Harris School at University of Chicago and had always thought like, wow, it would be pretty cool to work in a state capital someday. And then lo and behold, found myself in that role. So really um, a, a policy nerd's dream come true. Um, what we do as as lobbyists uh, is spend a lot of time looking at what current policies are and thinking about how they need to change in order to uh, improve people's lives. And it can be something, you know, as um, I, I think a great example of that is the work that we did this year in Springfield, along with a lot of other organizations, uh, to change the law uh, that had been on the state's books for probably 25 years that criminalized people living with HIV. And if people living with HIV didn't disclose their status before having sex with somebody, uh, even if it was sex that could not transmit HIV, and even if the other person never became HIV positive, they could still go to prison for up to seven years. Um, wow which is pretty stunning. And of course, um, you know, because this is America, the people who are most impacted were black and Latinx people, um, often gay men, uh, transgender people, sex workers, um, uh, and, and cisgender women, um, folks who are already, you know, the most marginalized in society. Uh, I was, I was our, our lobbyists uh, and staff put together an amazing coalition to work on, on this bill. And, I, I honestly thought that it was going to take, you know, probably four or five years to get this law changed. And it happened in one year, which is, is staggering. And it shows the extent to which our uh, legislature has really become so sensitized and aware of the 
disparate impact that criminal justice laws can have on marginalized populations. Um, so the legislators that worked on this on this bill, um, Representative Ammons and Senator Peters, just did did a phenomenal job carrying the bill. But then, of course, it was you know all about the coalition that we we built um, along with uh, great community advocates who were willing to step up and tell their story about their fears about what could happen to them because they were living with HIV. So I think that's a, a really good example of um, the policymaking process very broadly, but also how it can impact people's lives. And of course, um, one of the impacts of this law that we were knew was so detrimental was that folks were often afraid to get tested for HIV because if you don't yeah. know your status, you can't get you know prosecuted. Um, and so right. for some, it was just like, well, why get tested? Um, so that's obviously really harmful for individual and community health. Yeah, and so we can see how this was an effort that wasn't just done through one group of people, but through you know many groups of people over a long period of time and in the best interest of society as a whole, because I think that um, while people may look at this and say, well, it really only affects people that are HIV positive because, you know, it's decriminalizing um, them. But can you help uh, uh, people understand how it, it isn't just about this one group of people that it's helping, but it's really about it's really for the people of Illinois? Of course. And that's such a great way to think about it, of course. Um, you know, on, on one hand, um, when we know that um, when people living with HIV are on treatment, their likelihood of transmitting HIV sexually goes down to almost zero. And we call this U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and it really shows the tremendous power of HIV treatment, um, not just for individual health, but also to protect community health. So it's critical that for people living with HIV, that they're on treatment, um, mm -hmm. because when they're on treatment, their chance of, of transmitting HIV to someone is almost eliminated. So that's, I think, a critical example of, of how the, the laws like this, by promoting HIV testing, can protect the, the broader community. I think um, more, more broadly than that, uh, having a law that's on the books like this really stigmatizes people living with HIV. And yeah. it's really the stigma of HIV that kills more than the virus itself. Because with um, when there's such strong HIV stigma, people are afraid to get tested. They're afraid to disclose their status. They're afraid to go to the doctor to get treatment. And this law is, I think, one of the most egregious examples of, um, of stigma producing laws because it uh, it, it promotes the idea that people who are HIV positive are, you know, vectors of disease, which of course they aren't in this day and age. And actually one of the most shocking things about, about the origins of this law is that the federal government in the late eighties, uh, essentially required or, or really pushed states to put laws like this on the books. Uh, so it really was a federal, you know, a, a, wow. it's kind of the, the doing of the federal government. And there's now about 35 states, 33, that have similar laws on their books. And so there's wow. a growing movement to change them nationally. Yeah. 
Well, I feel like we really shouldn't go any further without talking about what you're doing and where you're doing it, because we've already mentioned it a little bit, but it's going to blanket, obviously, a lot of this conversation. And so the AIDS Foundation Chicago, I think one of the things is, that's interesting to me is there's probably going to be people who are deciding whether to listen to this episode based on just where you work. And you talked about the stigma. And um, I'd like for you to share with me exactly what it is that, you, that you're doing there, what the foundation is all about, and sort of the work that you're doing for Chicago. Because I think, you know, breaking down that stigma is really important. And I think that people understanding that this isn't, this isn't a political conversation. This is a conversation about an organization that is concerned about the health and the welfare of people. Right. So at AIDS Foundation Chicago, we're focused really on two things. Uh, one is ending the HIV epidemic. And we really do that every day through uh, our work with um, probably about seven to 8,000 people who are living with HIV across the Chicago metro area. We uh, coordinate case management for people who are living with HIV, helping connect folks to resources, and also housing for people who are living with HIV. Uh, we also are, the, our second kind of broader purpose is to end homelessness. And homelessness is, of course, one of the drivers of the HIV epidemic, because when folks are homeless, it's really challenging to maintain your health, and that can lead folks to, uh, to uh, survival sex or drug use or just, mm. you know, an inability to protect themselves from, yeah. from HIV. And so um, I, I think what, what ties these, these two uh, challenges together beyond, you know, their kind of innate linkage is that they're both rooted in structural racism. Uh, and Structural racism uh, and systemic racism is why we see Black and Latinx people uh, living with HIV at you know dramatically higher rates than white people, and why uh, Black people in Chicago are um, or or people who are homeless in Chicago are overwhelmingly Black, uh, and you know and and far disproportionate to other cities uh, that are like Chicago. Um, and it's the systemic racism of uh, institutions, um, you know, of, of uh, historical uh, issues like um, redlining and, and segregation that are, you know, still very much with us today that are really driving the HIV epidemic and driving homelessness. And that's why it's so important for us at AIDS Foundation Chicago to not just be addressing the HIV ep epidemic and homelessness, but to be talking about the impact of uh, institutional racism and uh, and doing something about that, both within the systems that we operate in, uh, as well as our own organization. And as you're sort of tackling these issues, can you share with us about how the people of Chicago are responding, how they're partnering with you, or or maybe even some of the challenges that you've had in getting people on board with partnering with you or, or listening or learning about what needs, what, what can change or what can be better. 
Yeah, so we're incredibly fortunate at AIDS Foundation that I think we we really do have a broad base of support of of uh, corporations and individuals and, and foundations that are are supporting AIDS Foundation Chicago and also coming together to support all our many many partner organizations. Um, of course, you know there's there's always um, there's always you know a need for more. Uh, yeah. And one certainly one way that that organizations and individuals can uh, support AIDS Foundation Chicago and learn about our work and get involved is our AIDS Run and Walk, uh, which is probably the Midwest's uh, largest HIV uh, event taking place October 2nd in Soldier Field. Uh, and we'll have several thousand people coming together uh, to walk and run together um, to support people living with HIV, uh, people vulnerable to HIV, and also to help provide housing. Uh, so. We encourage folks to learn more at AIDSRunWalkChicago.org. What I hope is that people have heard that this is more than a fight against something. This is a fight for people. And there's so many ways to learn and get involved. And, and what we really hope to do is to help people learn and to just raise the awareness and to just say, hey, just take a second to learn about more about your city and more about people who are impacting the future of this city. And I'd like for you to also share with us about the AFC's uh, Getting to Zero campaign and how, how your organization is fighting to get Illinois to, um, to zero when it comes to HIV. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, our, our first um, purpose is ending the HIV epidemic. We're co-leading with the city and state health departments and also with uh, probably 50 organizations statewide, hundreds of, of advocates, uh, the Getting to Zero Illinois strategy, which aims to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. And it we've, we've worked with researchers at University of Chicago who've done modeling that shows that it's possible with the technology that we have today, uh, which is is pretty astounding. So currently, there's about 1,300 uh, new HIV cases a year in the state. Wow. Uh, about 600 people newly diagnosed with HIV in Chicago every year, which is down dramatically, by the way. Um, okay. New HIV cases have have gone down uh, by about 15 to 20 percent over the last five years, which is amazing news. Um, but we know that, um, first of all, with PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, we can almost completely prevent new, H's, new, sorry, new cases of HIV. And PrEP is a daily pill uh, that is uh, actually now uh, free for um, people with or without insurance. Uh, and it's almost 100% effective when taken consistently and correctly. Uh, so it's really about making sure that the folks who are most vulnerable to HIV are on PrEP uh, and taking it. We also know that, uh, as we, we discussed, we know that U equals U, so undetectable equals untransmittable. The, and uh, so when people are uh, aware of their status and taking HIV medication, they cannot transmit HIV sexually. And so it's so critical for uh, people with HIV to get on treatment and stay on treatment. Um, the challenge, however, is that about, uh, about 
um, 50, 40 to 50% of people who are HIV positive in Illinois are not on HIV treatment and have an unsuppressed viral load. And that's because of poverty, of because of stigma, yeah. uh, lack of health insurance, um, fear of discrimination. Those are all the factors that are keeping people from getting tested. And unfortunately, they're most uh, the uh, many of the people who are um, either undiagnosed or not on treatment are Black and Latinx, uh, often um, gay men, uh, trans women, or cisgender women, um, who are often incredibly marginalized to begin with. And uh, the challenges they face from undiagnosed HIV are uh, just icing on the cake. I want you for a moment to imagine 2030 and we're in a, a state where we found out for the first time we have zero transmissions, zero new transmissions in 2030 to 2031. What, what are you feeling? What are you, what are you seeing around you? What are you thinking about um, for Chicago, for our city? What a great question, and uh, it is something that I I um, like to transport myself to the future and 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 think about. Um, so, first of all, um, I think it'll be just an incredible moment because we'll know that uh, we'll have achieved a significant uh, new um, moment of equity uh, where. Um, hopefully, uh, we have um, really ended the HIV epidemic among all people and not just white people and white gay men and white gay men who you know have, have money. Um, and we can't just end the HIV epidemic for those folks. It's got to be for everyone. Um, we will still have lots of people living with HIV uh, because we won't have cured HIV and a cure for HIV is is decades away. So we are still going to have to work really hard to make sure that people living with HIV stay in care um, and uh, are able to manage the daily challenges of living with HIV, um, maintaining stable housing, um, mental health, substance use treatment, um, of course, addressing poverty and and uh, and um, joblessness are, are going to be challenges. Um, and then aging with HIV is a kind of wonderful problem that we're having as uh, people who are HIV positive live longer. Uh, and we know that about half of people who are HIV positive now are over the age of 50, um, which is amazing. People are living yeah. longer, right? Yeah. But at the same time, uh, we have really don't know the impact of someone taking HIV medications for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, it, we, we do know that people who are HIV positive and who are aging experience earlier aging than their peers who are not HIV positive. And so um, lots of comorbidity issues. Uh, and then there's the challenge of uh, our you know, aging system not being ready for LGBTQ people <laughs> or or necessarily ready for HIV. So we have our work yeah. cut out for us for us there. Yeah. So 
Well, John, I want to thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I think it's really good information. I think it's really important. And I think the work that the organization is doing is, is really important work. And it's something that I think more people should know about and um, should hopefully care more about. Um, is there anything that you want to share with us that we haven't gotten to talk about that you think is important to share with our listeners? So I, I want to encourage folks to learn more about AIDS Foundation Chicago on our website, which is aidschicago.org. Uh, you can also learn about Getting to Zero Illinois, which is GTZ Illinois, like Illinois is spelled out, HIV. Uh, and then AIDS Run Walk Chicago uh, is aidsrunwalkchicago.org. Uh, and please join us on October 2nd at Soldier Field. It'll be a warm up to the marathon. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because just what you need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, John, again, thank you so much. We'll make sure to link all of your socials and all the ways that people can connect with you to this episode. So wherever you're listening to this episode, you can find um, out where to connect with AIDS Foundation Chicago. You can, of course, go to www.bridgingchicago.com where we'll have all that information. You can listen to all of our season four and prior episodes of the podcast there. You can also find and connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For LinkedIn and Twitter, you can search Bridging Chicago as well as Instagram, of course. You can search Bridging Chicago. That's our handle. And then on Facebook, you can look up SATC Law, where we post all the Bridging Chicago podcast episodes and information on our guests. So thanks again, John, for joining us. I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate you sharing this important information with us. And we hope that people really take that to heart and, and dig into it and, and learn more about it. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we look forward to joining you on another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Thank you for listening. And again, be sure to connect with us on our socials and at www.bridgingchicago.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.